<clears throat> Hello, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another one of my YouTube videos and Podbean podcasts on Gaudium at Spez22.com. Uh, sorry that we haven't had uh, an interview in a while. Looks like I think about 10 days on here, uh, but, you know, summer's a busy time and uh, I'm a busy dude <laughs> doing all kinds of crazy things. Uh, so my apologies for that. There was a while there I was doing like two or three of these a week and now I'm down to like one every 10 days or so because of all kinds of other things. But anyway, very pleased today. Very happy today. Have a repeat here today. Uh, and that's uh, uh, Daniel Drain. He is assistant professor of theology at St. Bernard's School of Theology, assistant professor of pastoral theology at St. Bernard's School of Theology in Rochester, New York. And uh, Dan is also a former student of mine at DeSales University and currently finishing up his doctorate at the JP2 Institute in Washington, D.C. So yes. and I and I hope that's going well. It is. We're close, close to the end. Yeah, that's good. Good to I hear. I wrote all the fun parts already. Now it's all of the what does Balthazar think on on other themes kind of stuff, the the connecting tissue. Yeah. Having written a doctoral dissertation on Hansuos von Balthazar myself, the difficulty in writing on Balthazar <laughs> is every dot connects to every other dot. And yep. he wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And uh, it all has to be read if you're going to be a Balthazar scholar. And it's a monumental Herculean task, uh, but but well worth it, uh, I think. So uh, kudos to you for persevering and plowing through uh, Balthazar. What's the exact topic of your dissertation again? It's called, um, oh God, what is it called? Saving Finite Freedom, um, the relationship between finite and infinite freedom in von Balthasar's theology of redemption. Ooh, so lots so, of theodrama, yeah, the lots of theodrama. Hell, exactly, exactly. Yeah, my dissertation was mainly on Balthasar's Trinitarian metaphysics. But, you know, once again, it all relates. I'm sure you're dealing with everywhere. Trinitarian metaphysics, just as I dealt with the relationship between finite and infinite freedom. You end that's up just writing different. on everything. Okay, right let's just talk about everything. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, atheism, uh, unbelief in the modern world. Uh, it's it's uh, it's challenge to the Christian faith today. And it seems as if it's an increasing challenge. And I'm going to, uh, and, and of course, you're teaching a course right now on atheism, right? For In the summer? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a, a summer session class, a full three credit graduate course um, on atheism, unbelief, and the atonement. So that's how it's sort of becoming a theology class in the end. But we're tracking... Um, Initially, I said we would we would kind of sketch three different species of atheism, sort of like pre-Christian atheism and then like Enlightenment era atheism and now post-Christian atheism, which, you know, I think I'm about to say uh, we'll call practical atheism. But it's turned into sort of Nietzsche, Dostoevsky and then back to the gospel. That's that's kind of how it's been framed. OK, yeah. well, we'll start there. Uh, but I'm going to also begin by getting my plug in, which is that uh in my opinion, uh, one of the central motifs of the Second Vatican Council, what, what really motivated it was the development of a, a kind of Christian humanism, the kind rooted in a uh, Christological theological anthropology. Uh, and, and De Lubac, of course, was deeply influential at the Second Vatican Council, uh, hence even the name of my blog, Gaudium, it says 22, 
which is based yeah. on Section 22 of Gaudium et Spes, you know, the famous line, you know, it's only in the, you know, the, the light of God made man, various translations that the mystery of man takes on light, the only light of Christ that the mystery of man takes on light. Uh, and, and I really thought what, what the council was up to was an attempt to co-opt uh, various forms of atheistic humanism. And once again, you know, De Lubach wrote that very famous book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism, uh, that was very influential in my young life. So I'm going to turn it over to you now, after I've sort of set the stage as to why I think uh, what we're talking about today is not only important in and of itself as a topic, but I think it's also important as, as a tool for retrieving what to me was one of the central projects of the council. But anyway, over to you. Um, so briefly sketch out what's the difference between pre-modern atheism, enlightenment atheism, and post-modern atheism, or pre-Christian mm, okay. atheism? Yeah, I mean, um, I think what I ultimately want to say, and this is this is actually the argument that de Lubach ends up making about the contribution that Dostoevsky presents to Christian thought. <clears throat> um, there's a sense in which um, to reach sort of Christian maturation of uh, detachment from any kind of idolatry. You actually do have to pass through a sort of atheism, whether that actually manifests as a, as a crisis of faith or whether it manifests as wrestling with Nietzsche or someone like that and understanding the objections to pass through that, to understand what we mean, but actually what we don't mean about God is, is a sort of crucial moment. And therefore that kind of atheism, what could be called Christian atheism, uh, that has a place in faith is just not possible prior to the gospel. Uh, I want, if if you don't mind, Larry, I want to begin. Um, sure. Actually, to connect some of these threads. So, Gaudium et Spes nineteen, just be, just before twenty two, obviously, um, speaks about atheism as as one of the serious problems of the modern age, and it glosses on that a little bit. And also, paragraph thirty eight later on kind of reconnects the threads about about freedom, creaturely autonomy, atheism, and, and sure, and, um, yeah, Go ahead. a lot to be said about Ratzinger having had a hand in that part. But there's a great Wednesday audience that um, Ratzinger gave or Benedict gave in twenty twelve, and and here's what he says about atheism in particular. And there's a formulation here that was really key for for my thought. Um, and just notice how he doesn't mince his words. He says. A particularly dangerous phenomenon for faith has arisen in our times. Indeed, a form of atheism exists, which we define precisely as practical, in which the truths of faith or religious rights are not denied, but are merely deemed irrelevant to daily life, detached from life, pointless. So it is that people often believe in God in a superficial manner and live as though God did not exist, etsi deus non deretor. In the end, however, this way of life proves even more destructive because it leads to indifference to faith and to the question of God. And there he's, he's basically um, rephrasing yes. God as uh, 30. But, but this idea that, um, that actually most Christians might actually be atheists <laughs> was, was probably the most yeah. intriguing kind of what set me off to make this class. Cause that's, that's also what I encountered in, in parish ministry. Um, what you would see, you could call belief in God, but if you scratch the surface, you could see that that actually it was just surface. There was no, there was no there there, and and then so that the class I'm teaching, for example, actually does the intellectual work of like, okay, what happened in the history of thought, the history of theology, history of philosophy that gets us to this point where people can say they believe in God, but there's no substance to it whatsoever, and that that kind of practical atheism 
is therefore decidedly different and, and actually can receive a sort of healing or sort of antidote in a, a, a Christian atheism that you see in a Dostoevsky or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it, this is central to almost everything I write uh, over yes. the past three years on my blog. I, I refer to it, and I got this directly from Rotzinger, not the term, but the idea. I refer to it in my my latest book, for example, uh, uh, Confession of a Catholic Worker, uh, as the nullification of God in the modern mm -hmm. world. It's yeah. more than simply, hey, I don't believe in God. It's often the case people say, I do believe in God. But if you scratch the surface, there really is a de facto atheism there, as I call it. And ultimately, what you end up is nullifying the reality of God, nullifying the very question of God as in any way relevant or important to our day to day lives, which which and then that it, when enough people do that in our culture, when our entire culture is structured around this idea of the yeah. nullification of the question to our social or after all, we're the first culture in the history of any history that's attempted this grand experiment of constructing an entire culture and society around the idea that God doesn't matter. Not that God doesn't exist, but he just doesn't matter. Right. Uh, and, and this is a and this is Ratzinger's genius insight, if you ask me. I mean, I didn't have this insight. Ratzinger did. And I got it from him. I remember reading that audience uh, quote, too, in, in 2012, thinking that's it. That is really it. But anyway, so thank you for that. Uh, that's a great way to start. Um, so um, and obviously that that kind of Christian atheism is not possible before before Christ. But then Christianity does happen. So what is the nature uh, of enlightenment atheism? Forget enlightenment deism or various enlightenment permutations and reinterpretations of Christianity. There was a strain of just straight up atheistic thinking in many enlightenment thinkers. Uh, so what, what's what's the difference there? Yeah, I mean, I suppose as 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 we're exploring it in my class, I think what we're we're coming to see is that, um, I mean, with any change in worldview, and if you want to describe the Enlightenment as one thing, it's it's a sort of radical transformation of the world, uh, an utterly extrinsic worldview to to put a, a term on it. Or I'm I'm also doing the sort of Schindler argument of a, the technological uh, worldview or the technological paradigm. You know, the sundering of the unity of the object and the subject of of the will and the intellect and so on, but uh, the sort of worldview where it's just presumed and therefore enters into the, the water and it's the air we breathe that um, if there's a God, he relates to me as something utterly outside of me. His commands could only be an extrinsic imposition. Um, and then you have, you know, all the various enlightenment thinkers who in their own way, either rewrite Genesis or, or redo, redo creation myths, tell, tell the story about man's origins um, in a way that presumes that that's the nature of the world and thereby show that actually that notion of God is ridiculous and ought to be rejected. And this is the kind of interesting intellectual line that you can walk as a as a serious Catholic, namely that um, you can see, okay, here's a, here's a crappy understanding of God and here's another one and here's another one. These guys were right to reject that, right? And there's careful yes. work to do, of course, the sense in which, you know, someone like Rene Descartes right, willfully blinds himself and therefore doesn't see God. So like, obviously you want to make those distinctions, but um, what we've discovered, for example, recently, we, we did a, a pretty close reading of Nietzsche's uh, genealogy of morals or on the genealogy right. of reality. Yeah. Classic. And I won't, I won't do a summary of it here, but um, if Nietzsche encountered the God in the way that he said he did, then, then he was right. Then he was so right. 
and we need to reject that idol too. So that's 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 sort of the the, the careful and, and interesting work that, that we're doing right now. You know, we read uh, we read the parable of the madman, right? God is dead, the the classic. Yeah. Yeah, but we're waiting for the after the aftershocks, and and I think for him is God. For him is God. Oh, you better believe I read it out loud in the German. Ich werde sagen, Gott ist tot. Gott bleibt tot. Yeah, and there's an Yeah, it's great. You have to do it in German, man. You got to do it in German. Then you can almost hear Nietzsche thundering this out to people. God's dead, and he's going to stay dead, baby. And we killed him. Yeah, you know I. What's really in the background for all this, and, and I bet you share this, is 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 David L. Schindler. I mean, this is what he yeah. he really opened up this line of uh, the loss of the the meaning of God in the modern age. And obviously, he's piggybacking off of off of De Lubach and Ratzinger. But but this idea from Schindler, this insistence, which which pushed him into doing almost nothing but metaphysics, that um, if if God doesn't touch on the meaning of everything, then we're not talking about God, right? And that's precisely actually what he saw. He encountered a, 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 a Christian culture where God didn't matter. And so he says, "You, I'm the madman, but you people don't understand that your God is dead. None of this matters. Right? Wait till you see what happens to this culture afterward. Therefore, let's rise up and, and, and be the uberman and, and yeah. affirm life and heroism and so on and so forth. He's absolutely right to do that. If If, if God doesn't matter and he's dead, good. Let's make something of it now. And I think Christians actually can, can say yes to part of that. What Nietzsche misses and, and, and Lubach says this as well, you know, in, in drama of atheist humanism, there's a, a whole wonderful section on Dostoevsky as prophet, but de Lubach ends up saying, you know, Dostoevsky saw everything Nietzsche saw, but a little bit more. <laughs> the thread of, of Christ yeah. as the son who, who takes on the sort of irrationality of evil and doesn't explain it, but suffers it for us. And that's, um, that's where we're headed. My, we haven't gotten there yet in, in my class, but that's why the transition to atonement, right? Christ actually has the paradigmatic response to this, to this tension, right? If God doesn't matter, then you're not talking about God, right? And if God does matter, then evil is really a problem. But how does the God who matters solve the problem of evil? Not by explaining it away, not by eliminating it, but by suffering it and making it then the sort of path to redemption. So that's the shape of of, of how I'm seeing the historical. Oh yeah. yes, I, I, I mean, uh, in in a previous book of mine that nobody read, I think two people read it. Uh, my, my book on science, science and religion, <laughs> the God of Covenant. You know, it was called the God of Covenant and Creation. Here I am plugging all my books today. I don't normally do this. I read it, Larry. It was me. Oh. And well, the, the, the linchpin of it, there's nothing earth shaking about it. I was simply building on the shoulders of others, collating Louis Dupre and Ratzinger and Balthazar mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people. But anyway, um, the essence of it it, it, it struck me is, is that there was this sea change that took place. And of course, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it was historically, you, you know, and, and by the way, it has to be said too: intellectual genealogies can also be dangerous if they're too simplistic. You know, I, I often tell you, I once knew an Orthodox priest who could tell me, he says, I, he said to me, I can show you in five easy steps how you go from the filioque to the Holocaust. And, and, and you know, and you realize, OK, I'm in for a really a, a, a peanut right here. This this is something else. Uh, and of course, it made no sense. It was just really ridiculous. So you have to be careful about that. So as I always like to intellectual genealogies have to be multifocal and they have to be thick descriptions of history and at the same time be adept, nevertheless, at 
pointing out the main channel of thought that's running through it all. And it's, it strikes me that the sea change takes place when we move away from classical understandings of causation, uh, you know, formal, formal causation in particular is lost. Um, you could blame nominalism. You could blame a lot of things, but it sort of comes to a head in the, in the Newtonian revolution. Where, where modern science emerges out of Newton's genius, and all of a sudden you've got this sort of billiard ball reductionistic, mechanistic physics that now dominates everything. And, it, and you have to sort of then fit spirit in there somehow in the pineal gland or in the soul or whatever. And it, you initially begin with this radically dualistic bifurcation then between this mechanistic world that runs on its own and then the world of spirit and values and other crap like that, which which tend to be subjective. And then, then eventually you just throw the, the spirit stuff out 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 the side, realizing, well, that's kind of superfluous. Uh, you don't really need any of that, really. Uh, and now modern science has turned its attention to, to humanity itself as something pliable and change. But anyway, I'm dominating the conversation here. I'm simply identifying, I think, to me, the, the, this move towards the unreality of God that you're describing that Nietzsche later picks up on is directly rooted in this ridiculously awful metaphysics grounded in an even worse physics. Yeah. 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 Just uh, this is from uh, Schindler's famous heart of the world center of the yes. church. Yes. I mean, his, his take on, on the transformation of, of causality is like all through this book, but, but here's a particular form formulation, I think. Uh, a God who is truly infinite affects all of our meanings all of the time. And a God who is truly creator affects those meanings in terms of giving them a logos, a form or logic. But the crucial question in this context is, of course, how this is so. And so we turn to a third summary statement. God affects all of our meanings by giving them the form or logic of love. With this last statement, I come to the heart of what I wish to propose what an authentic Christian creationism and infinitism requires is that the meaning whose identity has been assumed to be that proper to a machine be transformed into a meaning whose identity is rather that proper to love. So uh, just to do some of the scaffolding, right? Schindler, Schindler talks about whatever these changes are that happen through the enlightenment, the scientific revolution, whatever, we can call it uh, the sort of transformation from the organic to the machine in the sense that now we assume that uh, every given um, object has no meaning unless we impose it upon itself. Namely, it's a sort of technology. It's a machine that receives a form from outside. So everything becomes artifact and utterly sort of artificial in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, we also think about ourselves like that in relation to God, that namely, um, whatever I end up doing with God is something I do secondarily and not something that matters to me first in my very constitution. And so in the, like, I think on the next page, he talks about <clears throat> institutive relations, one of his, one of his famous things. But when he talks about creationism in this context, he's not talking about simply the retrieval of Christian myths or a return to sort of appreciation of biblical literature. But precisely, he wants us to see, and this is what Nietzsche or someone like him misses, um, the good news even of creation, namely that um, there's a God who's not in competition with us, whose transcendence is not that of being bigger in the same order, right? But who right. can give, uh, who can generously give of himself and allow things to be which are not him, but which mysteriously are still good. 
the sort of um, fundamental intelligibility of creation as something participated in. Schindler says that that has the form or logic of love. And to miss that is to miss everything. To see Christianity only as a sort of social force for right. uh, a worldly revolution that somehow thinks it's only going to be rewarded in the afterlife, you know, the false sort of eschatological relationship. Right. I mean, it's the, the slave revolt and morality, everything Nietzsche talks about there. So, but Schindler's proposal for a solution to that is, is to return to the doctrine of creation. And this is a, at the heart of what, what Ratzinger talks about too. One of Ratzinger's famous essays, um, Problems con or Difficulties Confronting the Faith in Europe Today, I think it's the title of it. It's in the winter 2011 issue of Comunio. Anyway, the chief problem that, that Ratzinger identifies that faces Europe or the West as a whole is a loss of faith in creation. And that that frames the argument for me precisely in these terms. We've lost the ability to recognize, well, any number of the following. Um, that it's good to not God, um, that that uh, limits provide intelligibility, um, that difference is good, that otherness is actually the condition of identity, and so on and so forth. And we see also a shadow or an echo of this in in Nietzsche, right? He he fears toward the end of his life, he says, you know, if we haven't yet uh, gotten rid of grammar, we haven't gotten rid of God. So this, is, this is why I love Nietzsche and why yeah. Schindler yeah. also loved Nietzsche as a figure. He <clears throat> saw that it doesn't touch everything. We're not talking about the same thing. So then, you know, the, the, the present sort of cultural or pastoral issue is that, um, you know, regular people in the pews, myself included, walk around with utterly inconsistent takes on the meaning of reality and their relationship to God therein. Um, what D.C. Schindler describes as a sort of uh, missology. It, it doesn't matter whether there's a truth there in this moment. It might matter in the next moment, but it doesn't matter in the moment after that the sense in which yeah. logic doesn't have to apply consistently. That's a symptom of our loss of belief in the meaning of God for all things. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that, that uh, the thing about difference and God is other uh, mm -hmm. it, it points though, to also the extremely important task of conceptualizing this otherness properly, God's yes. otherness properly. And you, you hit the nail on the head, I think non-competitively, uh, my friend Bishop Barron likes to talk about this all the time too. That God's transcendence is a non-competitive transcendence, and but so much of the Enlightenment, of course, viewed it as a competitive transcendence. Because as you also correctly point out, God was simply viewed as a bigger version of the same order in, in which we live, uh, and, and therefore, if God does that, then we're not. And if the world is doing this, then that's not God doing it. Something has to be retrieved in our theology of creation. Therefore, is that otherness uh, is not an alienating otherness or an alienated otherness, it is a ubiquitous otherness. It's an, it's an otherness which is intimate. It's an otherness which is other precisely in order to be deeper, right? Deeper into us than, uh, than, than we could possibly imagine. And sometimes I don't think we meditate enough on the concept of God's ubiquity. Uh, how is it possible for God to be ubiquitous, to be everywhere? It's only possible if he is, in fact, transcendent in in this in this sense that that we're talking about here okay so and i love you know god bless david schindler i hope he's enjoying paradise right now 
uh, I'm, I'm sure he is. He's having lovely debates up there. I'm, I'm hopefully I'm, I hope he's having a debate with Nietzsche as we speak. Uh, <laughs> Nietzsche, I hope Nietzsche found out how wrong he was in so many ways and yet how right he was in so many ways. So we'll, up there we'll with Boris Clark and Ken Schmitz in the wrong. Yeah, that's right. They're sitting around smoking divine cigars or something. Uh, anyway, uh, enough joking. Uh, I'm interested then too. then. OK, what what is the genesis then of this? post-enlightenment, post-modern, whatever you want to call it, a uh, notion of, of atheism. And then we're going to get back to Nietzsche and de Lubach and Dostoevsky. But uh, as just part of this survey, we've already hinted at it. What's the difference then between that kind of post-enlightenment atheism, post-modern atheism, Nietzsche? And I, I sense there's a difference between Nietzsche's atheism and what we see so so prevalent today. Do, do you agree with that or, or, or do you think it's the same? No, no, I would, I would, yeah, give me one Nietzsche for every, for every 10 practical atheists. I mean, uh, no, I think, I think, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, insert all of Ratzinger's pontificate here in the sense of uh, a loss of a, a, a faithfulness and reason. And this is where, you know, the sort of complementary genealogy you'd want to do is, is, um, and maybe it does sort of walk in, in lockstep with, with the loss of the sense of the meaning of God for the mind. But precisely uh, what Ratzinger talks about in Truth and Tolerance as a sort of uh, amputated uh, sense of reason, right? We no longer believe, actually, that we could even know the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the many highways and byways by which that's sort of made its way into the culture where, you know, we're happy to to go to church and listen to an okay moral sermon and then block that out for the for the rest of the week this 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 sort of utterly uh lukewarm inconsequential checkbox thing of 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 going to a parish on sunday i think um yeah i mean that's that's the way i'd want to i'd want to explore it right that there's a transformation in what we think reason is capable of there's this is precisely why John Paul II and then Ratzinger after him lamented about the the separation between faith and reason Right. We we've we've given up on seeing faith as a form of knowledge, much right. less faith and reason, both as a sort of form of love, love, which desires to see and thereby be in union with its beloved. So when we separate faith and reason, we also end up separating reason from itself. Precisely. Um, we don't understand that we have to believe in order to see. Right. And that's right. Um, funny. I was just rereading uh, Space Salvi and Lumen Fidei. Right. So Ratzinger's or Benedict's official last encyclical and then Francis's first, which seems to be mostly uh, penned by Benedict. This idea that, um, yeah, we believe in order to know, which is an ancient idea. Um, we've utterly rejected that. Right. Um, and that, now we know in order to disbelieve or something like that. It's it's so it's oh, so. Yeah. 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 Um, so it, it, it seems to me that what we're dealing with, too, is. Uh, it's not so much a qualitative difference in, in modern atheism to the kind of unreality of God, denial of God, atheism we saw in Nietzsche, is that we are just so far downstream from Nietzsche now, and the culture has gone exactly, in a sense, in, in the directions that Nietzsche sort of scoped out, now perhaps in ways that N even Nietzsche could not have foretold, is that the chickens have come home to roost in the sense that this, this notion that therefore— the Christian God creates a kind of human being that is decidedly anti-human and therefore mm -hmm. anti-social. Mm -hmm. 
and therefore dangerous is is where we are now. We're, 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 we're in, in one sense, we are going back to sort of the pagan Roman response to the first Christians who were charged with atheism by the Roman Empire. And, right. and mainly because in denying the sacral order that held up the empire and, and gave it its meaning and its significance and its traditions and its morals and, and, and customs and all that, the Christians were undermining the social fabric and therefore were viewed as these vermin, these anti-human, anti-social vermin who were just below co- contempt. And I think we're, we're reaching a similar stage to that now only on steroids where Christians and their God are now pegged as something not simply unreal, but because unreal, therefore, when you take it as real, you're doing something extremely dangerous to the social fabric. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And we're um, that's sort of come up in conversation in my class too. And I think what, cause everybody, you know, it's adult students. So people have, have careers and have had longer careers than I've, than I've been alive. So there's a lot of wisdom and, 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 interesting experience that coalesces in the room. And on the one hand, this is the most sort of frightening situation we could be in as, as a cult of believers that, that um, our culture is sort of structurally against us in ways that are not uh, often not explicit, but because it's sort of implicitly there um, that's frightening. But also on the other hand, like this is the game that Christianity has played from the beginning preaching the good news yes. to a culture that is just not, that's going to see all of it as a stumbling block. So, and that's, I mean, that's, yeah. that's where the hope lies, but it's interesting. Something you said reminded me um, the way DC Schindler talks about the crisis of reason. He points out, and it's, a, I think a really helpful insight here um, insofar as reason is in crisis, it'll precisely fail to see it. Like just so far as it's in crisis, we won't yes. ever recognize it. Right. Which is why, you know, JP2 at the end of Fides at Ratio, we have to be the guardians of metaphysics, right? That that kind of, you know, it sounds esoteric, but like Christians have to be the people now that go out and say, uh, it's good to be you and it's good for that to exist. And it's actually good for all of this to exist. We can actually start again by sort of preaching the gospel simply of Genesis. <laughs> yes. You know, we can do the, not to say we can do the, the Christ stuff later, but like actually everything the ancient Jews saw versus Babylon versus Egypt versus Persia is precisely what our culture can't see anymore. So like, let's start from there too. Let's, let's retrieve that, that history, that sense in which the Jews were absolutely punching back against Babylon when they say that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and places the stars in their, in their order and so forth. God doesn't create through sex, through violence. Uh, he doesn't use any stuff. That's all good news now, actually. Yeah. It's shocking, but that's precisely what our culture doesn't believe, right? It assumes that, right. um, However, we got here, it was ugly if there's any meaning to it. Uh, and as Ratzinger says in his homilies on creation, we've got dragon's blood in us, right? Everything's fundamentally violent. If that's not the foundation of our of our social order, then I don't know what is. Um, and therefore, it is really a sort of war of all against all. Whereas Genesis, God creates simply through speech and things emerge in silence and in peace. Yes. Yes. And he rests and enjoys all of that before doing anything that looks like manipulating it. That's 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 news now. I mean, yeah. so in that sense, I, I have a lot of hope, and that's the sort of pastoral imperative, I suppose. Well, yeah, I think there is hope. I, I was about to say, you know, that this presents us with a tremendous challenge and a tremendous danger to us personally, not just in terms of physical life, but careers and and you know what happens to our children 
in terms of their faith and so on. But it is also presenting us with perhaps one of the greatest opportunities that the church has ever been given in, in centuries and centuries, in a sense, an opportunity to, to preach the gospel freshly again, as, as if it has never been heard, as something new and innovative and provocative. Hey, looky here, look what, you look, look what we have to say, uh, because we're now not just post-Christian, I mean, we're post-post-Christian, maybe even post-post-post-Christian, yeah. uh, to, to the point where most people who aren't believers just don't even give a damn anymore. I just wrote a blog the other day, uh, maybe 10 days ago or so, where I said, you know, we have to realize that for millions of our contemporaries, they think of the Catholic Church in the same way that you and I and others might think of Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses as they come to the door. Yeah. Uh, it's just somebody, you don't know anything about their religion at all, really. Most people, 99% of the people, they don't know anything about what those people believe. And yet you, you instinctively have been taught and told and know that they're just not worth listening to. And so you either don't answer the door. If you do, you politely take their comic books or whatever they're passing out and you throw it in the trash. Uh, that's the, in some sense, that's the most benign construction we can put on it, that people just treat us like this irrelevance that's not even worth knowing about. But at worst, it's something else. And I'm going to shut up in a second and let you get back to your main theme. But I think the danger, too, that we confront is that modern culture is also, because of the technological paradigm, titanistic right now and and and, and somewhat technologically utopian. There's an innate or, or latent, let's put it, there's a latent ideology of immortality that lurks within modern technocracy, that somehow, some way we can find a cure for aging, a cure for death. Uh, uh, we can become, we can all become, download our consciousness into cybernetics. And so there's, and, and, and there is this you know, the technological paradigm, which which has a technological imperative, whatever we can do, we should do. Or, or, the, or, or the modern version of that, if we don't do this, then the Chinese will. So we better beat them to it. Uh, if we don't do it, in other words, somebody else will. So we have to do this. So there's 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 an, a sense of inevitability about this, a crushing nexus closing in upon us that we either have to participate in as willing participants or we have to resist. And that resistance is going to be in many ways prescribed. I mean, it's, it's going to be forbidden. But, you know, if we ever go to a single digital currency, for example, run by the federal government where you, there's no cash, cashless society, well, then you, you then a social credit system. And so you might be cut off of your bank account if you say the wrong things or go to the wrong church and those kind. Of, that's that's the kind of um, that's the kind of thing we're up against now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I um I want to comment on that, but to, to re something that, that occurred to me, you know, I, um, I was in your classes, you know, that. Maybe yes. Yes. I, I do recall that. Yes. And I, um, I remember students would, would speak out and debate on particular points. There was, there was an argument to be had that would come from the students and it would cause you to pivot. And I taught after you at the same institution and, um, was ready to not crush students by arguing better, but I was ready for, that kind of exchange. And I saw, um, I saw just in that sort of switch of generations that occurs that, that couple of five or six years between, between you stopping and me starting, um, I encountered students who on one level were utterly blank slates, um, which as a young teacher was cool. Cause I just got to talk uninterrupted and, and feel like I was giving them 
everything, yeah. spinning the narrative in a way that I thought would, would check the boxes of good, beautiful, and true. And I could do that. I would do that really well, get nice compliments on the sort of rhetorical polish. And they said that they were learning a lot, but they didn't give a damn ever. Right. Right. So right. we now have blank slates who are programmed, as it were, to not care. There's no, I mean, this this is what terrifies me about the present pastoral situation is that um, we've known for a while that, that, you know, beauty rather than sort of moral imperatives or, or correct doctrine is the way to reach people. But typically that beauty uh, encounters a, a, a sort of frothing at the mouth desire in people to find meaning. And I wasn't seeing that in the students. And so it, it sort of flips the task on its head where, where I had to somehow, me looking like this, awaken their desire for something more. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. The only like surefire ways to do that were by like being interesting and 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 being kind of funny and like yeah, eventually the the lectures would start to start to stick. But it was only the students who you know took me for intro and then took me for something a year or two later and then and then at the end of their time, the students who 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 spent more time with me, who had that I mean to use the the present term, who I got to accompany a little bit in their maturation. It was only then that I saw. Not a, not, I wasn't chipping away at a facade. It was more like what Michelangelo says about sort of unearthing David, right? Yeah. There was a there, there, but they just had no idea of what was inside them, of, of really a reawakening this desire. And it wasn't with particular content. It wasn't with certain rhetorical flair. It was the difficult, like, Christian living with people. And I That's worry about um, Catholicism sort of parish Catholicism in particular, seeing the crisis of meaning in the culture, seeing these efforts toward Titanism, responding to yes. transgender theology by way of programs, by way of programs, right? And this is actually why I I, uh, I can appreciate a lot of what Pope Francis sort of wants to generate in the church right now, which is this sort of patient walk with people and see what the hell happens. Because that, that's been true actually in my experience of teaching, which yeah, whatever, whatever that means. And maybe it's an isolated experience, but, but um, I'm well prepared to do intellectual lectures and make arguments and write books. But what's scary for every Christian and always has been, is just like living with people and seeing how Christ works in that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's so much in that. What, you know, let's, you know, Pope Francis, his idiosyncratic genius uh, is precisely, I, I think as a pastor and so forth, I, I think he does have a genius for, uh, he did. He was, uh, you know, uh, enamored of Guardini. I think he does have a genius for occupying that strange, vague, gray space between faith and unbelief, uh, and, in, in order to better reach people. And I applaud that about him. I think that's astounding. I have other issues with him that I'm not going to go into here. Uh, but I'll just say I'm not always certain that that translates into a program, as, as, as you just correctly pointed out. I think therein lies the I think he struggles to try and put that into a program. Uh, but anyway, you said something, too, you, and, and I don't want to talk about myself, but it, it makes a point. You use the word pivot. And and some of some of my students would criticize me. I'd see it on student evaluations. Hey, he's always getting off on tangents. Well, in some cases, I would, obviously, all teachers do sometimes. But what I was doing, as you well know, because you did the same, was I was pivoting. I had a certain the freight train was leaving the station and I had this topic I was going to talk about. 
but as the train was leaving, somebody was pulling the cord to stop the train. And I, I would stop and I would realize that's a damn good question. And it's not directly related to what I'm talking about, but it is on a much deeper level. So let's talk about that. Let's get to that. But here's this, Danny, and, and I'm going to concur with you. I did go back and teach it to sales again, like three or four years ago when Hauser <laughs> needed me to come in and, and spend a semester because Colin Miller had left mid-semester. And I remembered I got about halfway through the semester and I realized how little pivoting I was doing no because, because nobody was asking questions. It seemed like nobody gave a damn. There were a few students that did, uh, but, but not many. And there just weren't that many opportunities for pivoting. And so I was constantly getting through all the material all the time. And it really hit me. I'm getting <laughs> through all the material, but to what end yeah. uh, is it sinking in with anybody? I don't know. You know, so there, there has, and my, my friend, to, to not put a too fine a point on it, my friend, Mark Stallman, that I've interviewed on here a couple of times, two or three times, maybe. Um, he's, a, he's a very interesting fellow and talks a lot about how we don't completely understand the transformation of our consciousness that has been caused culturally and otherwise by the digital revolution. And, 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 and I think if he were here, what he would say, in, at least in part, is, is that what we don't get is that the digital revolution is a sort of all it's that nexus I described that's closing in upon us. It's an all encompassing reality. Everything is now this digital reality into which we view that we must fit and the, and God and spirits and whatever you want to call it doesn't fit within that nexus. Right. You know, not to, I keep just talking about my teachers, but I guess that's, that's how. No, go ahead. And I want you know, to get Monday, back to Lubach and, and, and Nietzsche, but we'll get, oh, back, yeah, we'll get back yeah. to that. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I always loved classes with with Dr. Michael Hanby, but it was always frustrating to, I mean, he, he would straight up say to us, it's my goal to make it difficult for you to walk around in America outside of this building. Yeah. And, and Hanby is frequently criticized in public for saying things, for using phrases like what we can no longer see or what's no longer available to us. And and a lot of people think he's he's sort of doom and gloomy that way, but it, it at least matches my my sort of pastoral and teaching experience of encountering a, a generation. And the problem, I suppose, is, is only getting worse. It's also in me, but I, I see it in those younger than me um, of of this this utter lack of of interest. And there's no there's no sort of way I can represent myself that's going to be remotely sexy to their intellect or to their will. It's just, it's just not happening. And that's the sort of the terrifying thing. So when Hanby says things like, you know, the technological paradigm has made it so that we can no longer see the infinite depth of things, it sounds apocalyptic, but like we really are, as it were, at that ground zero of the meaning crisis. Insofar as, you know, I was, I was quoting Schindler earlier, insofar as meaning is in crisis, we won't care. We won't that's care. True. Yeah, it's true. And, and it is an apocalyptic form of thinking. I have no trouble in describing it as an apocalyptic form of thinking. I've written on it. Uh, obviously, there are different kinds of apocalyptic forms of thinking. Some of it is just sort of doom and gloom. Uh, but what Hanby is, and let's dwell on him for a second, because it's paradigmatic. See, what Hanby is, what Schindler is, they're, they're metaphysicians. Yeah. And good metaphysicians in this sort of Christian register have an ability that most people don't have 
they have an ability to see through to the roots of things, to the, to the causes of things. They have the ability to take a surface cultural idea and to trace it back down to its metaphysical grounding, its first principles, its first things, so to speak, yes. and, and to thereby see what its inner logic is and thereby be able to predict in some ways what is no longer available to us. Some students sitting there might think, well, uh, it's not available to us. What doom and gloom is this? No, but he's telling the truth. It is. It reminds me of Augusto del Noche, who says that the mantra of modernity is it is no longer it, we can no longer believe in X, Y, Z. All right. That's the dogma of modernity. We can no longer believe in X, Y, Z. Uh, and and that's what what Hanby is saying, Schindler is saying, and a whole host of other people are saying. Uh, and it's simply because people have lost the ability to think metaphysically. They've lost the ability, even if you don't study metaphysics, you've lost the ability to look at an idea and understand its intellectual genealogy, its origins, and thereby to understand where it's taking you, where it's headed. Uh, okay, and where it's taking us now is off a cliff. That's where it, that's where it's taking us. And so the we might be all labeled as doom and gloom. People say the same thing about me, but it isn't. It, it can also be rather hopeful. Um, but anyway, uh, I want I do want to get back unless you want to say something more about that, and you can if you want. But I, I do want to get back to then De Lubac's treatment of Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and how he compares the two and and what what he says about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just to say say one other comment on that, because sure. um, we're we're also teaching here this course on the the life and legacy of Ratzinger. So I've been rereading all of his stuff alongside this exploration, which is a lot of fun. But um, I was just rereading an introduction to Christianity, um, and, and that that whole book is is really an exploration about what belief is, like the sort of structure of belief, not just its content, but um, cause he does that whole intellectual genealogy in those first 50 sure. pages, um, Verum S ends to, to truth becomes the makeable, what must be made. That's sort of technological paradigm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that, that, um, when Ratzinger turns finally to talk about the creed, the way that he talks about the, the purification or the demythologization of religion that happened in and out of Israel and into Christianity, he presents it precisely as a, a sort of purifying of faith. But what, what happens is that, okay, so just to get super concrete, our creed doesn't say, uh, I believe in the divine, right? It says, I believe in God, who's mm -hmm. given name, the Father Almighty, right? And the way Ratzinger sort of breaks down that structure, sort of from Judaism, we get the father part, and philosophy only had the almighty part, right? And now we say that God, who is father, is father almighty, who's then in, in a sort of, you know, of course... Uh, eternal relationship of communion with his son and his spirit. But that's um, that's the new thing that happened in reason and faith in world history, that we were finally able to say that God uh, is personal love, right? That that was the, the bombshell that exploded any and every other culture, Rome, Babylon, Persia, Egypt, so on and so forth, from yeah. the angle of philosophy and from the angle of, of, as it were, religion, right? And that that's no longer seen. Um. Okay, so well, it's not he, only no, no longer yeah. seen, but it's 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 viewed as a hegemonic imposition of a foreign ideology on onto uh, you know what is what are true humanistic values, um, and so it's yeah. lost. It just gets lost. But anyway, go ahead. Well said. Yeah. No, I um. 
Let me maybe, could I do just a little excerpt from, from Dostoevsky to start to oh, set sure. the page? Yeah, yeah this do. is from, um, this is a selection from The Possessed, one of his, his uh, shorter works. Um, this is uh, uh, Tikhon or, or Tikone, sometimes it's pronounced. Perfect atheism is worth more than worldly indifference, Tikhon replied with cheerful good humor. Oh, so that's what you think. And he says, perfect atheism stands high up the ladder on the rung below that which leads to perfect faith. While indifference has no trace of faith, except perhaps craven fear, and then only at times if the man is impressionable. <laughs> so atheism, <laughs> preferable to indifference, right? And if that doesn't sort of encapsulate kind of what we're, what we're talking about right now. Um, yeah, because the opposite of faith isn't atheism, it's indifference. I agree with that completely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the interesting thing that that Nietzsche and Dostoevsky see from different angles is that um, what man worships is ultimately the most important question. And Nietzsche is Christianity's ally insofar as he is able to name just about everything as an idol. He is he's one of the most profoundly sort of uh, apophatic thinkers about the nature of God. That's not God. That's not God. That's not worth it. That's not worth believing in. Christianity, Christians have to do that work. That's also precisely the, the drama of the story of Israel, the constant temptation to idolatry, right? What's tricky now is to see indifference as the sort of idol at which we worship and to pass through that and, and how that happens. And, and you know, I, I think it's it's really only grace that will do it. And that's, that's I suppose, in a nutshell, what Delubach sees as the difference between Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. Nietzsche read Dostoevsky and didn't see the sense in which Dostoevsky saw more than him. But as Delubach would have it, um, Dostoevsky, especially through something like Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor from the Brothers Karamazov, which yeah. came at the very end of, of Dostoevsky's life, um, those as Dostoevsky's ultimate response to the problem of evil, which lets evil remain a problem. You know, the, the rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor in particular um, are, are so hard to read because they make it all the more clear how devastating the mystery of innocent suffering is. Yes. Make it, they make it devastating in the sense that, um, I mean, this is this is the drama of, of Ivan Karamazov, who wants to return the ticket to heaven if it turns out to be the case that the suffering of one innocent little girl mattered. That's what's interesting about that story, right? Mm -hmm. If that's how it works, I don't reject it, but I respectfully return my ticket, right? If you make this intelligible, if this is how all things sort of coalesce in the eschaton, that, that this girl's suffering was instrumental... I don't want that. I don't want that. And I think what Dulubach sees uh, as the wisdom of Dostoevsky is that Dostoevsky is able to see um, not just the, the mystery of, of sort of that little girl's innocent suffering, which is used in, in, in rebellion, but um, God had a son who suffered innocently on our behalf, but he's the God man and thereby solves that problem by taking it on, not by explaining it away not by getting rid of death, but by, as St. Paul would say, sort of dragging uh, death through town in chains, right? I've conquered it. And now he, he serves us, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the more that Dostoevsky sees beyond Nietzsche. Yeah, innocent suffering is the problem, right? 
But the solution is not, Nietzsche was right, the solution is not to wipe away innocent suffering. Ivan Karamazov is right. You can't sort of, you can't wipe it away by making sense of it in a sort of- Well, you end up being like Job's friends uh, coming away with these hackneyed interpretations of why bad crap is happening to people. And Nietzsche saw right through that, as did Dostoevsky. And for my viewers and listeners who are not familiar with The Grand Inquisitor, it's a chapter within, a section within, uh, Dostoevsky's very large novel, great novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, and and the, the Inquisitor is, uh, you know, uh, like a Catholic <laughs> Inquisitor. And Jesus comes back and uh, they're pretty upset that he's back because he's not going to upset this Ecclesiastes. You can see Dostoevsky's anti-Catholicism coming out because the, the church has now arranged things so that we've got mystery and superstition and magic and bread and circuses. So, you know, we've taken away human freedom because Jesus gave too much freedom to people and burdened people with this freedom. And so uh, now I, the Inquisitor, indict you, Jesus, for get, having given people too much freedom, and we fixed that. We have fixed that. We've taken people away. And and what's interesting, Christ offers obviously no response. He offers no response other than to kiss the Inquisitor. And and what I love that Dostoevsky throws in there, he kisses the Inquisitor on his bloodless lips, his bloodless lips, which I think is, you could sit and meditate for hours on just why the Inquisitor had bloodless lips, right? And, and, and why Christ's simple kiss is is the only answer that that Christ gives in that little little short story um and and it's it's in some sense the answer of intimacy and love and and uh, an acknowledgement of the problematic it's my uh, when i meditate i think jesus is acknowledging that the inquisitor has in fact set up the problematic just fine yes that's the problematic and the problematic is going to be that freedom is going to lead to suffering and 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 another thing. So that leads me to then. Oh, but you look like you want to say something, and then I want to get to uh, how the atonement fits into all this. No, no, I just, I just, I just love that line of thought. You know, um, Dostoevsky, like right before the end, is responding to critics of Brothers Karamazov, the Grand Inquisitor, in particular, people who are trying to figure out what he really meant by it. And um, I was trying to find the, the excerpt from the letter because because Dulubak has it, but I can't find it. But but the the formulation that that Dostoevsky uses, which I think is 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 chilling but also motivating, uh, Dostoevsky says, you know, I came up with a better atheist than anyone else ever has. My hosanna came forth from the crucible of doubt. That's how he puts it. My hosanna came forth from the crucible of doubt, and yeah. that. Um, that's what I call then Christian atheism. We actually need to get to that point, right? We haven't faced the hardest arguments of atheism and passed through it, right? And seen seen yeah. the actual response. We haven't seen what Dostoevsky saw is actually the argument. Yeah. You know, there is a strain, of, to, to change this topic a little bit, it just popped into my head. There is a strain of uh, Christian thinking, Catholic thinking even, that would say that actually doubt and faith are not are not reconcilable to each other, you know, that, that doubt and faith are opposites and that they're, and that the, the perfected faith is a faith without doubt. Uh, I know certain followers of Newman. I'm not certain, I'm not a scholar of Newman, but Newman says things along these lines. And I don't know if I'm understanding him properly. And I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but there are, I've heard people use that argument from Newman to say doubt and faith do not coexist. 
Yeah, I and I, I don't know squat about Newman to say, but I yeah, I would be willing to bet I need to qualify a lot, a lot of what I've said. I mean, obviously, perfect faith in the eschaton will not have doubt. It will have the sort of distance proper to relational love where there's always more there there that I don't yet know, but that's a positive fullness and not a sort of negative. So, so I'll make that distinction, but yeah. Yeah. By the way, I agree with you. I'm I'm not, I'm not, I didn't bring that up by way of criticism. I brought it up by by way of, you know, that I've had people say that because I've written a lot about the importance of, of doubt within our current uh, faith life and and its construction that as dostoevsky said my faith is born out of the crucible of doubt that's true of me that's true of so many modern i think it's uh, almost everybody who is a true believer today they have passed through this crucible of doubt and it was an absolutely critical moment for them it was a turning point an angstfall moment a moment of and 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 i also say this I've said it frequently over and over. You cannot be a good evangelist of the faith unless you understand the doubts of other people better than they understand those doubts themselves. You can put a face and a name on those doubts better than they can. You, you're a teacher. I was a teacher. It was one of the things I strived most strenuously to do would be what we use the phrase now to steal man, a student's skeptical yeah. argument for them to say, ah, here's what you, you're kind of groping at it, but let me, let me, not put words in your mouth, but here's what I think you're really saying. And then I would reformulate their question for them in a way that would leave them astounded. Like, oh, crap. Yeah, you're, you're right. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And it sort of when you do that, it it lets your interlocutor know, your unbelieving interlocutor know, you know what? You, you're not presenting me with a gotcha moment or a gotcha question like, I bet you people never thought of this, you know, and, you know, actually we have, and we have thought about it more profoundly than you actually have. And we've suffered through it and lived through it and come out the other side. And if you'll take me by the hand, I'll be glad to accompany you to the other side uh, of that formulation. Uh, so I, I I think doubt in this side of the eschaton is a critically important aspect of charity, of empathy, of an ability, and not just for ourselves, but for others, you know, to, to understand the human condition properly as we actually experience it. Hmm. That's well said. Well, of course it's well said. I said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I like to hear myself talk, uh, but anyway, let's, let's get on. Let's see. Okay. We've almost, we, we've been at this about 50 minutes. Yeah. I mean, uh, so what's, what's the answer to, to the problems we've been sketching? I mean, I I've, I've put forward that, you know, to speak of Christ's atonement, or at least to understand it is, is the only path forward here. And what I mean by that is, is, is something like the following. So, I mean, continuing a thread that I, that I, I tried to lay down earlier, this idea that, that even, in the sort of creation myth that we have in the Old Testament, this the way the Genesis works, the structure of creation, what emerges there or can be read to emerge there is a, is a metaphysic of uh, the goodness of the finite, the, the affirmation of difference, the, the goodness of distance from God. In Genesis 3, a similar reading can happen. You know, there's this really, this is the, you know, the first dialogue in scripture between the serpent and the woman and so forth. Uh, but as I was rereading this recently with students, what really struck me is there's there's a couple of questions. So first of all, we see for the first time in Genesis three, uh, the figure of God asking a question. And when when God asks, and I'm not a Hebrew scripture scholar, so someone could probably correct mm-hmm. the hell out of this. That's fine. But let me read it as a sort of metaphysician here. Um, 
it should be shocking to us that God has questions because this is a God who has created Hashemayim uh, the universe and everything in it, the heavens and the earth. He knows all things and innermostly. That's that's clear from Genesis one and two. Yeah. So when God asks, "Where are you, Adam?" That should really bother us. And maybe it can be explained away as just a sort of pedagogical, rhetorical. God knows where he is, but Adam needs to know that he's not where he should be. Or... <clears throat> but the um, the final version of, of questions that, that God asks in that short sequence, God asks the question in response. Um, so the second question is, have you eaten of the fruit of which I told you not to eat? Right. In other words, did you really do what I told you not to do? And then the last in the sequence the question, at least as it is in, in English translation, is what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done, right? If this is the God who creates all things out of his transcendence, which is also profoundly imminent, who knows all things, who is the reason for all things, participation and goodness, for him to ask, what is this that you have done about sin or about the action that they've committed, about the introduction of death into, into the world, it sets us up to understand in a more fulsome way that um, the the battle in in all of salvation is not between sort of good and evil or, or or between man and God, but between, as it were, life and death, right? Death is a problem from the very beginning, such that God asks, even if it's just rhetorical, what is this that you have done? Whatever death is, it's a that that God doesn't, as it were, have the reason for to hand. It's it's this novelty, this vacuum, as, as David Bentley Hart calls sin, the sort of black hole in creation. It's this, it's this hyper-dense thing. So death is the problem. And you can read all of salvation history in that light. The death is the problem. We introduced it, that, and we thereby can't solve it from within. So we need the Lord of life to sort of take that on for us, right? Then if you sketch the problem of uh, the mystery of innocent suffering, if you sketch it uh, in that light, within that sort of understanding of a theology of creation, it's, it's easier to connect all of the threads of the fittingness of uh, an innocent son who takes on our condition and who suffers the effects of death and suffers it more perfectly and more therefore comprehensively, but doesn't suffer it as I've already sort of alluded to in a way that um, like you and I still have to die. So he, mm -hmm. he suffers death in a way that empties it of its power, but allows it to sort of remain as the gateway. Um, and that's what some, that's what Nietzsche can't see. Right. I mean, you could read all of John's gospel as, you know, under this motif of, of Christ saying, come and see, but also of Christ sort of sinking down into our condition and coming and seeing himself what we've done, of suffering that condition. Mm -hmm. And that, in that sense, I would say that the atonement is the most profound response to the mystery of innocent suffering. Why? Because the problem is not eliminated, but it's it's suffered through and transformed into what? now our path to eternal life. It's no longer a problem in the same sense, right? It's just as devastating to God as it were. God has to suffer it um, and suffers it more, more deeply, more comprehensively than any of us could because he's perfect God and perfect man. It's more painful, but also all of our sins, as it were, are available to him, right? So that's a whole way also of reading kind of all of scripture too. That's well, yeah, and it's precisely why, too, you know, Balthazar and others would say that Christ did descend into hell, you know, that he experienced the pains of hell, which which uh, or the alienation of hell or what do you want to call it? Uh, and, and this is simply this yeah. is simply his way of saying that 
Christ had, because hell, hell is, right, a, a, a species of death. <laughs> yeah. You know, if death is the genus, then hell is, is maybe the ultimate species that is expressive of death. And what is hell if not simply spiritual death writ large? Uh, and, and so it's the mystery of death come to fruition in, in these yeah. stark ways. And so, of course, Christ's death has to encompass that death, that that profound mystery at the at the heart of human freedom and 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 its rebellion uh, against God. I also, you know, this is this is part of this preaching the gospel in in a refreshing way again because people need to be reminded, I think, over and over and over again that death is the great barrier. Death is the great nemesis. Death is the great black hole that sucks everything into itself, destroys all meaning, destroys all aspiration. Ultimately, we all go to dust. And of course, there are numerous biblical verses that 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 speak of how evanescent life is. It's just it's there and it's gone. And, And then there's death. And death is the great leveler. And that's why St. Paul says, you know, in Corinthians, he's struggling and he goes, look, what is, what is ultimately the inner essence of sin? What does it sting? It's death, right? It kills us. It's, it, it's, it's robbing us of this, this life that we're meant to have, which is why the resurrection pulls the stinger out. Okay, it it robs death of that, it robs sin of that sting, that sting of death. Now we don't have that sting of death. Uh, and I so I love this. I love this line of thinking that that you're going on here uh, with regard to the atonement. Um, I'm reminded of yeah, certain things. Margaret, hand, Margaret Turk has written on this as well. Go ahead. I was just going to say exactly. We're we're reading her book for the for the last two classes. What so a great book! It's so good. It's so good. She's also sitting in on the class, which is more than a little intimidating. Um, she's letting me. <laughs> yeah. She's letting me put on the circus. But uh, oh, there's nothing I hated worse than having a fellow <laughs> professor or something that knew more than I did on the topic no, sit in on one of my classes. Like, damn it, damn it! Now I have to actually say something that makes sense. I've actually encouraged her to dramatically correct me at some point. Or, or oh, something. you know that's the best path to do. You know, <laughs> as I. Sometimes I've had students say, oh, you know, you're, you, you intimidate me. I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask. I said, don't, 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 don't do that. The fact of the matter is, no matter how educated you are, you will always there will always be somebody in your life when you are around them. You feel like a blithering idiot. <laughs> you feel so profoundly stupid because you realize I felt that way always around David L. Schindler. Of course, yeah. he didn't make you feel stupid, but you realize uh, you know, there's a humility, in other words, and there's nothing wrong with simply saying there, you know, there's stuff I don't know. And this person over here knows it better than I do. And, exactly. and it can be intimidating or it can simply be a moment to say, I, I please correct me, yeah. <laughs> Tell, yeah. uh, teach me. I, I want to learn from you. A, a, a kind of a thing. I'm a Germain Grisey, the moral theologian. I studied under him. He was another guy that's like, oh, geez. Mm, I, he, I, believe I, that, I always, yeah. I always felt, felt profoundly stupid when I was around him. Not, once again, he didn't make you feel stupid, but you know, purposely. But anyway, back to what you're saying about the atonement. I, I want to come back to then, once again, to the question of doubt, because this is this is really critical to me. Um, I, obviously neither you nor I are counseling people to constantly live in this suspended state of hand wringing like, Oh, today I believe and tomorrow I'm an atheist. And the next day I believe again, that's, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, obviously people go through that and that too can be a catalyst for, 
for yep. deeper thought yep. and growth. But that's not what we're talking about. Uh, uh, baptism confers upon us the gift of supernatural faith. And, the, you know, I've, I've been now a sort of convicted believer for, you know, about 50 years of my 64 years of existence or, yeah, about 50 years. And that's the Ariadne's thread that runs through the entirety of my life. Even as my outward observance of the faith ebbs and flows, even as my enthusiasm emotionally ebbs and flows, there is that, that sanctuary light hanging in my soul. Yeah, that that, yeah. that 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 little burning ember that hangs in your that's the supernatural gift of faith. And it's there. Now, if you have that, this is what I'm talking about. If you have the supernatural gift of faith, and I'm going to presume that most listeners do, then it is, in fact, then possible within the structure of that faith, not in opposition to it or as a counterpoint to it. Yes. Within the structure of that faith, there is the ability to, in a sense, suspend it to bracket it, to, to place oneself pro nobis for the sake of the other, to yes. begin to try and think, what must it be like not to have faith? Yeah. And what are the doubts that flow from non-faith? And to be able to think those through in this kind of, with your faith bracketed, but still there, uh, still there and informing you and inspiring you and, and fueling your contemplation, to then actually work through. And this is how, in some ways, to bring it back to the atonement, I think this is not Christ didn't bracket his faith or anything like that, but there was a kind of suspension of his divinity in a sense, where, where his, his, the fullness of his glory is, has within it this ability to take within itself all of this dreck, all of this garbage, and how is that possible? How is that possible? If it's possible for Christ to take all that dreck into himself, then it has to be possible for our faith as well. So in other words, this is my answer to the question, are doubt and faith inimical to each other? In some sense, yes. But in a deeper sense, I think not. Yeah. And I mean, even you know, on a more practical level, if you need to view yourself as, okay, I'm going to doubt in order to make sure that I'm not here worshiping idols. I'm going to yes. search out any false conceptions of God, any inadequate conceptions of the relationship between God and the world, between my freedom and infinite freedom, I need to search that out. And the way to do that is perhaps by reading someone like Nietzsche or reading these figures who did not believe, but saw the problems that faith says it presents answers to. Okay, take on Nietzsche's objections. Can you provide the answer to that? And this is the way I framed our engagement with Nietzsche with my students. I said, I'm going to make you wrestle with him. I will be on the sidelines. I can take him but I want you to try <laughs> yes. to have that sort of affirmation of like, we can take this guy, we can handle this. The answers are there, but you need to do the wrestling. Why it will make you stronger. Uh, also Nietzsche was actually better at faith than you are. And you need to see yeah. that. You need to see that from within. So that's sort of actually positive evangelical task of like, we have to cast down these idols. We have to make sure we, we just read the other day, Dennis Turner's excellent essay, uh, how to be an atheist. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's a very no, playful. No, I have not. Sort of dense um, British Thomistic takedown of um, most. It's a little bit like David Bentley Hart's response to Dawkins and guys like that. It, it smacks of that that book, Atheist Delusions. But um, Turner's advice is like, 
we've been doubting God exactly the way you have, but way better from the very beginning. In fact, Thomas says almost nothing positive about God. And he says that the first thing you need to do and what you perpetually need to do is make sure that you're not saying the wrong things about God, such that eventually we'll discover that whatever I mean by God can't mean what I think it means by God, but it means something. And that's that's your starting with theology proper. And most Catholics are not doing that. So that's the service that like a class like this performs is like, do you believe what you think you believe? Or do you think you believe what you actually believe? (laughs) Augustine, you know, si comprehendes non es Deus. If you can comprehend, it's not God. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to comprehend God. It's just a constant on the lookout for for the idols embedded within our faith. And you know what? This sort of purging of your own faith of its idolatries in other words, it's superficial constructions that are more informed by silly ideas rather than profoundly Christian ones, uh, doesn't necessarily even have to flow from reading profound thinkers like a, a Nietzsche. Uh, it, it, can absolutely, it, it can absolutely be provoked within you, and it can create within us a deeper charity towards our interlocutors, it, but by morons, <laughs> you know, by 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 people that just want to make you want to rip your hair out. I run into this on social media all the time or in the com box of some of my articles I've written for Catholic World Reporter, where you just rip, well, I don't have hair, but you know, neither do you, but you know, rip what few, rip my beard hairs out thinking, Oh, what well, this simpleton, this moron, but, but I tend not to respond. Uh, but when I do, it's only after I sip a bourbon, smoke a little cigar and, and ponder, well, do they have a point? What's the point there that they're trying to make? And then you realize, you know, they, they do have something to say here that maybe I had to think about. Um, I was, t- you know, like I was watching a video, not that he's a moron, but uh, watching a video from Ralph Martin and Martin, a new one. He's come out where he's trashing Balthazar and his relationship to Von Speyer. And he accuses basically Balthazar of encouraging Von Speyer to be a medium and that she's channeling spirits. Uh, they call it communicating with saints and so forth. But Ralph Martin characterized it as occultic, demonic, channeling nefarious spirits and so forth. And of course, my immediate reaction and then a lot of others that you, you people you probably know are like, oh, God, shut, oh, no, that's not what they're doing. On the other hand, you sit back and say, OK. Why is that not what they're doing? In other words, how do it prompted me to think more deeply about Balthazar's relationship with Von Speyer and what she was actually up to and what her charism really was. And I had to admit, okay, how is this not channeling? How is this not necromancy, as the Protestants would say? Uh, how is it not conjuring up people that, you know, automatically on command and that kind of through some sort of magical technique right. that you've mastered or something? And you realize when you think it through more deeply, oh, OK, that's that's not what they're doing, right. uh, that she's engaged in the, the Jesuit practice of colloquy where she begins by imagining conversations with saints. And then if you do that enough times, then that conversation becomes a real prayer and then a real conversation. And then God gifts you with the charism of actually communicating with, with the saint. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. I wonder if you had any further no, thoughts just on that. The, the, the takeaway of that for me is that um, you better be able to answer those questions that we, we can't, we can't afford to be afraid of questions like that. Right. We can't be right. afford. Let's. Um, we were just reading this. This other uh, Ratzinger does this reflection on on uh, those who dress sycamore trees. It's some line from from Hosea or Amos or something yeah. like. Yeah, the dresser uh, of sycamore trees. Yeah. 
Yeah, dressed up sycamore trees. And apparently the way that that um, you make the fruit actually edible is by taking it off the tree and slitting it open. And then it, it it's fruit like takes a few days and then it's and then it's ready to eat. And Ratzinger reads that as um, the encounter between Christianity and the cultures that we have to use the logos and sort of slit the culture open in order for its fruits, which were unusable to become usable and good. And that's exactly the attitude that that we can have, even for these, you know, the morons, as you put it, or or these things that are not <laughs> uncharitable. I'm talking about how it makes us more charitable than I call them morons. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they're, that, that's though my point is they're let's, not. Let's morons. take it all. Let's all capture it for Christ. You know. Yeah, that's fine. you know, I mean, I, I'm sure if I went out on a golf course and was golfing with somebody who actually knows how to golf, he's looking at me going, "What a moron," uh, because he doesn't know how to golf, and I don't. Uh, which is why I don't. <laughs> uh, there, I mean, pe different people have different skill sets, and we just need to be aware of that. But one of the skill sets that the theologian has, or the metaphysician has, is to think these things through. And we should. You're absolutely right. We should do that for the, for the sake of others, for the sake of people who have questions. So anyway, uh, I guess I left you speechless with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We've been at this about so, an hour and 10 minutes, but uh, I feel like continuing a little bit here. Go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I just um, I mean, this is all still an open question for me because because part of my mission is is. You know, what is the pastoral response to this crisis of meaning? And the only thing that's clear to me is that um, the gospel in all of its fullness, Old Testament, New Testament insights about creation fundamental insights about whether anything is good uh, is precisely what needs to be said and heard. Now, what practical context in which that um, that has to happen, I'm not sure, but I guarantee you that what needs to be said in the present sort of uh, exchanges about gender ideology or whatever is that uh, the body is good and that it's good for me to be me and for you to be you, and it wouldn't be good Actually, to say that I could become more like you by way of surgery is to deny the goodness of me and the goodness that is you. It's right. to relativize it all and to say that it's meaningless, actually. So, like, there's a very concrete instance of, like, hey, these weird Christians believe that matter is good, like, tremendously transforms from the ground up the nature of the sorts of exchanges and the, and the technologies that we're, that we're employing. And, yeah. Yeah. That's the and analog for me is, is the, the transgender ideology. Um, yeah, the sense in which we need to affirm something like an original difference to use John Paul II's language. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a real challenge. I mean, I uh, I remember reading uh, Luigi Giussani's book, you know, The Religious Sense, many, many decades ago now. And it's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful book. He writes like an Italian. And I'm always a big fan of uh, the style of Italian writers. Uh, but nevertheless, he makes fantastic points in there. And I was revisiting the religious sense the other day and, and realizing that that sort of communion and liberation approach is fantastic. Uh, and I, and I endorse it. Nevertheless, there's a problematic with it now, which is that the religious sense has now become so attenuated in our time and in our culture. Uh, that you almost have to spend more time, time trying to reignite that tiny ember uh, to enlarge those categories of the religious sense in someone before you can even start talking to the gospel about about the gospel to them. You know, and there's no questions to redirect or to refound. You have to you have to create the conditions in which people have questions in the first place, 
which might just look like making ludicrous claims by street corner preaching or something like it, you know, I believe that this is true. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, the, the, the fact is, I mean, an older generation would have of reductionist materialist atheists would have simply tried to explain the religious sense as the epiphenomenal projections of, of the brain. The brain is playing tricks on us because of something in our reptilian past or our mammalian past. You know, my reptilian brain is trying to conjure up something and some bang, you get this religious sense and religion is epiphenomenal, meaning just that just it's an effervescence. It just exists like bubbles on seafoam uh, and, and goes away. But I would say a lot of modern people, if not most of them, no longer even bother to try and explain the religious sense as, as the epiph because that is a backhanded way of saying, yeah, yeah, I have these feelings. I actually do have a religious sense. Uh, I just don't think it's something pointing to something real. Uh, my, my point is, is that people don't even think in these categories anymore uh, and, and that the religious sense has become so attenuated, so truncated that maybe they don't have these experiences anymore. That's the scary thing to, to, to live a human life without having these sorts of experiences of the numinous of the supernatural things that go bump in the night, even where you, you, you don't even have those anymore. Everything is just simply prosaic. Boom. Nothing more. You know, in Evangelium Vitae, it's, it's toward the end of what is a very long encyclical. JB2 uh, describes the first move we're supposed to take to combat the culture of death. And all he says this is the way he puts it. There's a lot of, there's some flowery language about being joyful and stuff, but he says, um, sorry, that was reductionistic about JP2. We need to have an abiding joy about these things. But he, he says, we have to foster a contemplative outlook. Why would that be the first sort of methodological move for, for people who are combating a culture, which is eating itself from the inside? It's this insight, I think, and again, speaking here with, with Ratzinger and Schindler at all, um, that we have to first see everything that's said here in the faith, in our tradition. We have to see it. We have to be utterly captivated and taken up by it. Because precisely because we're encountering people that almost constitutively cannot care, the best shot that they have is to see us, you know, Bingo. insert language here about being on, on fire or whatever with the faith. We have to have seen it. Uh, and then look like people who have seen it, not to put on a show, but to to be interesting in all in all the ways that are that are necessary. But that involves uh, it will involve programs. But further downstream, it, it involves first uh, our having actually encountered Christ, purified our belief, being convicted of it. Yes, as yes. St. Paul said, being prepared to give reasons for the for the hope that is in us, but first to have the hope in us. Um, and And I mean, the sense in which people don't have a religious sense constitutively anymore is no doubt tied up in the fact that we don't present, um, we don't even need to present a counterculture. We don't present a culture in the first place, a Catholic culture yeah. in thick sense, or even in the thin sense, right? We, we present secular analogs, which have been so thoroughly denuded that it all just looks like a really lame, inefficient, unsexy version of anything else that you could get in the culture. So that involves literally at the individual level being convicted of one's faith in Christ, which necessitates sacramental behaviors and what's going to look like anti-cultural behavior, but is actually the most profound sort of cultivating 
behavior. Absolutely. I mean, the Christian regime is a regime of gift and reception. There is a gift given, but it has to be received. But therefore, that means in order to be us to be open in this contemplative posture, we, we have to desire the gift. Uh, and as you know, as to quote, you know, to, to bring in Rene Girard here, I mean, all desire is ultimately mimetic. Uh, we, we, we learn to desire certain things by watching what it is that other people desire. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I love C.S. Lewis here as well in Mere Christianity, where he talks about, you know, salvation is, is kind of like catching a good infection. Yeah. He uh, goes, the good infection. And, and, and we need to infect others with our infectiousness. Uh, and and all too often we're not doing that, uh, and and that's that's the tragedy of it all. The tragedy of modern unbelief is that we have this ripe opportunity to be infectious, and to give people this better infection, and and we're we're failing miserably, myself included, I think most of the time. At the end of the first section of Space Salvi, um, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, he's just gotten done describing either faith or hope, I forget, they're kind of interchangeable in the document. But um, at the end of that, he specifies with a citation from de Lubac that salvation is a sociale quidam, a social thing. And that means, of course, the, the maximal sense of like, we're all saved together or nobody is in that sort of ecclesial sense. But also um, sort of to to invert the, the, the sort of Protestant paradigm, like uh, you're only saved insofar as others are saved with you. Like if you're not interiorly convicted and, and overflowing with that, then then it's obviously not taken in some sense. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and the sort of the atomized, individualized, Protestantized notion of salvation is a kind of vertical me and Jesusism, you know, where Jesus hoovers us up to heaven. Uh, you know, uh, it just it just doesn't float. It just doesn't float. Hey, look, we should probably wrap this up. Uh, yeah. We've been going now for about an hour and uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, I don't like to go much longer than that on these things. We can do a part two someday, Danny. That, that, that'd be good, too. Uh, but anyway, do you have any, is there anything left unsaid that you want to say before we, before we call it a day? Um, if you're interested in the person of Jesus Christ, I'm teaching Christology in the fall. We're going to follow these same threads. That's, that's you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. That's whenever I, I am so big on the St. Bernard school of theology these days. So is my wife, Carrie, uh, what I, I want to direct my viewers attention to what's going on. There something spectacular is, is going on. If you're interested in communio theology, resource theology, if you're interested in that kind of theology, there is a there is a real renaissance of that going on up at St. Bernard's School of Theology and not with people like Matt Cooner, Lisa Lacona and, and you, Dan Drain and, and others uh, that I, I want. And there are, you, you have online classes, right? So. Everything. All of our classes are in the evening, typically 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, they're synchronous via Zoom. And then for folks who are in different times, you know, folks in California, for example, the Zoom recordings are always up on our closed sort of course Canvas site within the next 24 or 48 hours. So in other words, everything's available at a distance, but everything's taught live. So nothing's canned with us. Everything's fresh and you can really talk to us. <laughs> well, yeah. a big shout out to St. Bernard. Say hi Thank to my you. good friend, uh, Dr. Stephen Lachlan, my former colleague, uh, his beautiful wife, Carol. And of course, to uh, Matt Cooner and Lisa and, and, and all the others and all the others. I really appreciate what you guys are doing up there. Thanks for taking the time, uh, Dan, to speak with all of us today. Thank you. Dr. All right. Dr. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, and uh, more sometime in the future, perhaps with 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 Dan. Bye now. <laughs>